I'm Kelly O'Hara. You're listening to Pod Clubhouse. Pod Clubhouse. Beautifully done. <laughs> Mrs. Fain's to be congratulated. Do you have a good cook? Oh, hadn't you better ask my guests? Do I know them? How can I answer that? Shall I tell you what I think, Mrs. Russell? I think you have a very good chef. French, of course. Of course. And a fine palace of a house. But I don't believe your guest list is quite what you would like it to be. Mr. McAllister, you see through me as if I were glass. We can mend that. You and Mrs. Astor? <laughs> me and the people I will introduce you to. I'd love to think you would be my protector. For now, but fairly soon, I'd say you'll be protecting me. <laughs> Mrs. Russell and Mr. McAllister seem to be getting on well. Why wouldn't they when they are more or less the same person? <laughs> Welcome to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode five of the Gilded Age. It was called Charity Has Two Functions. It was written by Julian Fellows and once again directed by Sally Richardson Whitfield. Just a community note, if you want to continue the conversation and get some extra history notes, please join us on Facebook in the Gilded Age fan group, parentheses, HBO series. Man, could I have made that more cumbersome a title for reading it out loud? <laughs> it makes sense was, if you're there, to, you know. I don't know why you want to say the Golden Age all the time, so I'm always like stumbling over the Gilded Age, so yeah. I don't know. Thank you for being a friend. Oh yeah, I might have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> You know, your favorite Golden Girls, Ada, Agnes, Bertha, Mrs. Astor. <laughs> They're my favorite Gilded Girls. Can you imagine them all at Shady Pines? It would be fantastic. That would be amazing. Uh, just a reminder, we assume that you've watched this episode, so we're not going to go step by step and recap it. So please go watch your episode and come on back. Uh, let's start right with something that we probably should have discussed last week, but we didn't. So typically, episode five in the modern landscape, when there are 10 episodes in the season, which has become prestige. Each TV kind of standard. There's often ten episodes in the season now of these these mini mini season shows. Episode five tends to be the cliffhanger. If there's an eight, then it's episode four. Here it's a nine episode season, which is weird. A little awkward, little awkward. A little awkward. No ties though. Like the you know Supreme Court, there are no ties. Watching this episode made me realize that in some ways episode four was the cliffhanger was the mid-season episode for some of the characters and i think tonight's episode five was the mid-season point way for some of the characters and some of the plot lines so it's gonna be interesting i think as we go through i think it would be useful just as tv is made i think to, to talk about kind of where these characters are and maybe where they go now from the rest of the season I like to think because we have nine, maybe some had some changes in four and some are going to have changes in five. But as a whole, between four and five, everybody starts the back half of the season. 
I think the best place to start with is Marion or the miseducation of Marion Brooke because because I think watching this episode made me realize that episode four really is her mid-season episode. That was quite a comeuppance between her and Peggy. Like, yikes. She, I mean, all the missteps that she played out there in episode four really felt like rock bottom for her. Feels very mid-season-y. Like, this is a mm-hmm. low point for Marion in friendship, right? Marion has two prongs, really, to her character. Learning about friendship and learning about love. And through both of those things, learning about society. It would be wise for us to think about, beginning with episode five, she's reached her low point and now begins how she builds up and learns from her mistakes and learns from Peggy putting her in a place and telling her, we're not friends, you don't know anything. This is where she has to, you know, this is Rocky, right? This is like where she Mm -hmm. has to get up off the mat and kind of actually grow. Did you see growth in this episode? Well, I was going to say, I feel a little bit like she's still, like she's a fish on the on the deck, flopping around on rock bottom, because there's still some missteps that she definitely has here in episode five that made me cringe. But I do think she's a little bit opening her eyes to the world around her. It's still just, it's it's, it's small. It's small, but, but it feels like her feet are still definitely on rock bottom. She still makes the wrong assessment in a couple of places, but I feel like she's at least trying. Beginning of the episode, I titled this clip Sigh, because Peggy listens to her. Peggy, you know, Marion comes to Peggy's room. The scene unfolds, and I don't know if the audio clip is going to pick it up, but watch Peggy's face, all she can do is, is sigh at Marion and her little self-pity party, which is where she really starts in this episode. It really starts in Marion's kind of having a pity party for herself. It's a little whiny. You'll hear it in the clip. Let's play this clip. Is that the New York Globe? Did they publish your story? See for yourself. <laughs> you are to be congratulated. What an achievement. Thank you. The things we said when I came to Brooklyn, those idiotic shoes. (laughs) I don't need a fairy godmother. I know, but I think I came to your parents' house as much as anything because I was curious. It seems to me Mr. Rakes knows more about your life than I do. He's a lawyer. He understands how to find things out I need to know. And I don't. Look, we fell out. Let's not make it worse. You have a good heart, but I run my own life. Is that clear? Yes. Mr. Rakes has a reason to know you and I don't. (sighs) We were so hoping that she would start doing things rather than just asking questions. And now that she's actually making statements and doing things, I'm like, go back to asking questions. You're just doing things that make me cringe. Yes, this is super cringy. And, I mean, and, what, what is uh, all of that? Well, because I agree with you, and it is super cringy. That's what you say when you agree with someone. You're like, I really agree with you. <laughs> gonna, I am going to come to her defense here a little bit. Few things in this world other than delicious cookies are black and white. If you were trying to be someone's friend, someone mm. who cloaks themselves in mystery the way Peggy has, 
could be a little infuriating. You know, it's kind of like, you know, it's the, it's that, it's that gif of the, the girl trying to make her two dolls kiss, you know, like kiss, do, do what I want you to, you know, it's like kind of like that. And, and Marion doesn't like that she doesn't know anything about Peggy. Peggy knows everything about Marion because what there is to know, which is not very much, it's only a couple of chapter book. It's like a one chapter book with Marion and, and it's wide open for anyone to read. There's no mystery in this woman's life. Peggy is all mystery and, and secrets. And I think that's driving Marion a little bit crazy. Now, does she take responsibility or does she deflect here? She absolutely deflects here, which is annoying. I only came to Brooklyn because you were too mysterious. No, that's not a valid reason. Because she was curious. I can't even, I cannot imagine being like, oh, see, I just pried into your life because <laughs> yeah. I was curious. Dodoy, we all... <laughs> Obviously, that's why you barged in. I barged in because I wanted to know what you were doing. Oh, okay. And we also haven't really seen the scenes of her actually asking Peggy things. She's just kind of assumed that Peggy would tell her things. But I don't think we've actually seen any scenes where Marion has said to Peggy, why don't you like your father? Why don't you like going to Brooklyn? You know, she's just, I maybe assume that friends just tell everyone everything because I tell everyone everything. You know, I met this boy across the street. I told him my life story while he, while he saved pumpkin. You know, Marion doesn't keep anything back. She, she's this like spigot that doesn't turn off. And so I don't, it maybe hasn't occurred to her. Like you actually have to ask questions of the people you want to be friends with. The last thing I would want to do is encourage Marion to ask questions. She asks plenty of questions. Peggy does an excellent job of keeping Marion at arm's length when it comes to these types of things. She closes the door, for goodness sakes, when she's having the conversation with the lawyer. She doesn't invite Marion in. So ask all the questions you want. But I mean, through her actions, Peggy has said, this is my private business. I'm not going to share it with you. I'm not sharing it with anyone for that matter, you know? Except for Mr. Rakes, who is a lawyer who I've retained. It's a professional, right? We all agree that's different. Right, right. But she has to actually spell that out for Marion, though, right? Because Marion makes that. Well, Mr. Rakes knows everything. Yeah, he's a lawyer, and I've hired him. He's not my my BFF. It's not like, Tom, let me tell you about, you know, it's not that. Right, she's acting like they're spilling tea, and she's just like the third wheel. And it's like, that's not the situation. Right, exactly, exactly. But let's contrast, though, because I think this episode does a good job of this is where it starts this is how it starts and then how it's going at the end marion brings up the shoes again brings up her faux pas but it's said in a different way and i think she explains herself a little bit in a very necessary way let's listen to the clip from the end of the episode in short miss barton is a woman who understands the world's ills and the bond that will cure them reminding us of the words in the bible and now abideth faith hope charity these three, but the greatest of these is charity. You've captured her perfectly (laughs) and the essence of her work. And you're right, she has made the Red Cross mean much more than offering aid to wounded men on the field of battle. Thank you. She stops charity from feeling patronizing. Like people who give out old shoes? You have to remember, I never met a woman like you before I came to New York. You mean colored? No. More that you and Clara Barton are your own people. The women I knew in Doylestown just accepted the role of wife and mother, but you make your own path. I can't wait to see your article in print. She says, I can't wait to see your article in print. But what I think she really means to say, what sound, what makes more sense at the end of that sentence is, I can't wait to be a woman like that. 
it really explains where she's coming from. Peggy, I think, probably assumes a little bit that Marion is an enmeshed part of the society life and should know better, despite all evidence to the contrary. But I like Marion saying this, like, I've never seen a woman like you or Clara Barton that is determined, that is making her own path, that is not living by, think about 1883. She's an Elsa, and Marion's only known Margaret, you know, for people who are watching 1883. Hey, by the way, Caroline, we forgot to tell everyone, we had Christine Baranski stop by our 1883 podcast the other day. We did. She was. She really lent some important insight. We asked her a couple times to come on a mic, and she was a little resistant. We got a lot of this. No. Oh, Christine, Christine, Christine. Uh. I hope she continues to join us here in our conversation. No. Hey, hey, well, we got cookies, so maybe don't make a, a judgment just yet, Christine. I understand everything you're saying about Marion, and I'm not going to disagree that she's obviously showing some degree of at least self-awareness, and that's great. Um, she's trying to move past this question stage and try to actually engage with people. She's just so awkward about it. She's doing things that are just so off-putting. When she said the line, your mother came by, you weren't here, so I talked to her and dead i wanted to just like shake her and be like when you said that did that sound right (laughs) because i mean my goodness you already had the i have my private life and i want to keep my private life private conversation why wouldn't you just leave it at your mom stop by period end of sentence don't say the rest of it like don't you know you're gonna make peggy uncomfortable Let's play the clip between uh, Marion and Dorothy, because I actually, I also agree she shouldn't have said even that much, but it's really, it's the back end of it that really actually made me uh, smack my head in a classic uh, facepalm maneuver. As far as I can tell, Peggy feels her father forced her into a course of action she regrets. Parents do things to protect their children, whether they like it or not. Peggy belongs in Brooklyn. It's nice she has a job, but she will only live a half-life here. She likes the work. But there's more to life than work. And Peggy cannot live your life. I suppose not. In Brooklyn, she could meet a suitable husband, have her own family, and walk through front doors instead of back entrances. I hadn't thought of that. I know Peggy is fond of you. She wouldn't stay here if she wasn't. But family is a precious gift. It isn't right for us to be at odds. I believe Peggy loves you very much, Mrs. Scott. Pats won't let go of her, but she loves you. Bless you for saying so, Miss Now, Marion hears all of that, again, doing the, I've never thought about that. But for me, the facepalm moment is, your mom made some good points that I agree with. You oh. know, like, that's not what you say to the person you want to be friends with. <laughs> well it certainly is not a bonding moment with that other person when you're like you know what i think your mom's right you really don't have a leg to stand on it's like girl friends say stuff like moms are crazy moms don't moms don't know you like i know you even if you secretly agree it's secretly agree (laughs) and i yeah i would say especially if you secretly agree you stand behind your friend so mm. and i know a lot of um of our audience really loves marion and is really seeing themselves in her so part of this might be 
be that you and I are older than Marion, and maybe we can get a little frustrated with her because she's a little more like our child than she is our peer. And that can be a little bit like off-putting in terms of the things that she does. So I'm going to try to kind of be more her age and and say, I certainly said a lot of very awkward things. I certainly did not uh, express myself exactly how I should have. And I certainly asked a lot of questions that made people uncomfortable. So I'm going to give Marion a little bit more room in the back half of the season to say, all right, Marion, you seem to have a little more self-awareness. Let's see what you do with that. Is that fair? I think so. And I think and and I think it would be disingenuous if she turns up in episode five, you know, knocking it out of the park across the board in the friendship aisle. Some things that she does well in this episode, she continues to be extremely supportive to the point of, I wouldn't say envious, but she like aspires to be a Peggy with her writing career. I find that all very sincere and very genuine. And I think a good friend checkmark for her box. There was such interesting writing in between her and Peggy when she said, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but this is the gist. She says something like, you deserve to be congratulated. And I looked over at my son, we were watching, and I go, why didn't she just say congratulations right <laughs> it's funny because it's this it's just like those little dialogue things that definitely you know it gives the show its style obviously but it's funny to like compare how you know we talk now and how people spoke more formally but it's funny i feel like i want to go around and be like you know you should be congratulated about that then just like move on like as if like maybe someone will come along and congratulate you, you. i don't know it it won't be that. me but i'll right. just keep walking <laughs> and they'll be here at 10 past five to do the congratulations Right. Good luck with that. I hope someone actually does it. What do you think of Dorothy (laughs) uh, Scott's reasoning there in that clip about the half-life comment really struck me? And I don't know if I agree with it. I haven't fully processed it yet. It was something that made me stop and pay attention, though, to what she was saying. As long as Peggy stays here on the Upper East Side, she can never live more than a half-life. I found that an interesting comment. I don't, again, I don't know if I fully agree with it. I'm curious what your thoughts on it were. I do agree with it. And I would say that it's it's a phrase I haven't heard. I have never heard of like a half-life. That, that concept is not some way I've heard it described before. But I understand what she's saying, that by choosing to live in a society that is not as accepting as if she went back to Brooklyn. Um, Certainly she could be head of household in many ways. She could have her own family. It was important that that conversation came on the heels of episode four, where we saw the Scott's home and we saw an opportunity to, you know, obviously have a very beautiful home and plenty of money. And they also gave us a glimpse around Brooklyn. Like when they kind of pan the camera around, Peggy would never be like looked down upon or in any way have to stop a conversation because someone else was walking by kind of thing. Like she would never have have to feel like she had to be submissive to anyone if she came and lived back in Brooklyn and did the things there. It's a difficult task that she's trying to perform here because I think we're getting this with all the women's vote, with even with the with the Red Cross. We're seeing that everyone is trying to make these inroads. They're trying to change the way the world is. Mrs. Scott is 100% right for what the world is now. The part that she's kind of skipping over is that Peggy wants the world to be a better place. And in order for that to happen, some Some people have to be brave enough to step out of their comfort zone and start trying to push on those neighborhoods, if you will, who aren't allowing her to use the front door. And that's how that, you know, we can move forward. No one's wrong. It's the this is us. Both things can be true. Um, She can be living a half-life and be happier because she's trying to push on those boundaries. Then she is living a whole life in a place where she feels like she's settling. 
What a relief to have you safely back. And what a journey for a speech. Mrs. Russell didn't spoil things. She's the heroine of the hour and has transformed the movement with a donation. Miss Barton is much more of a reformer than I'd realized. I do admire your Miss Barton. Is there a fashionable cause she does not support? Surely you believe women will vote eventually. I believe in small and incremental change, not running around with a banner and a gun. <laughs> you can't win with Agnes. Agnes's comment there does shed some light on her. I support you, Peggy, but for love of God, please don't tell me what you're writing about. I, yeah. I can't. I can't know. I literally cannot know. My heart cannot take it. If you, if I feel like you have a banner and a gun with you. What do we feel about people like Aunt Agnes who who say, I will turn a blind eye to what you're doing to try to change the world around me, but I don't want to know anything about it. I don't want to help with it. I'm not going to stand in your way, but I'm not going to do anything, and I really don't want to know anything. It's not good, but I am more inclined to give an older person who is on the back end of their life slack for it because I think Agnes is far more progressive for someone her age than many of her peers would be. We saw in this episode, this episode alone, Aurora, who is half of Agnes's age, having a lot of racist tendencies towards Peggy and marveling at how progressive her aunt is. Well, wonderful for Agnes for being so supportive, even though she's a colored woman. You know, mm. that's coming out of Aurora's mouth. This is a woman who's going to be right. alive when women get the right to vote, Aurora will be. You know, Agnes will be long in the ground by that point. And these are the comments coming out of their mouth. So I'm more inclined to cut Agnes slack, even though it is a bad view because she is letting it, she is giving the tacit approval. Go do it. I support you. I like you. I like your gumption. That's how the world changes. But I'm too old to see the world change. I'm glad that you brought up age because it made me go back and look. I know in 1883, I had looked up um, in Texas and basically like sort of the, the Wild West, what the age expectancy was. And it was 39. And so I looked up what was it in New York City today. And in 1882, it would have been 41. When we're talking about age, I think that's important. It, it matters over with Archie Baldwin. And it matters here because when you're saying like older and people are looking at her and saying, no, no, you know, Aunt Agnes isn't that old. Remember, age expectancy was only 41. You're looking at a much older grandpa type figure there than what you and I are seeing as a beautiful Christine Baranski. You know, like we have to understand societally, she's representing the much older age group than how we would, you know, see her today. So I think your point is well taken. And, um, and it does make me think about everyone else in their ages and stages of life. And like, you know, <laughs> thinking about like Gladys and not coming out yet and all this stuff. I'm like thinking she's like practically middle age with what they're doing to her. Like it all very much uh, reminded me by thinking about their ages, like really what's going on in the world and what they should be doing. It's a good point. And it's definitely one I think that we forget about. When you look at it from that point of view, I think it does support Agnes is like this. She is a little subversive or let me say it this way. Agnes for someone her age, you wouldn't expect to be as permissive of subversion as she is, right? I don't think Mrs. Astor is going to have a black secretary. Agnes, though, does. It's just interesting the old ways that she's clinging to and the old ways that she's willing to jettison. It is also startling to hear a woman not be full-throated supporter of, say, the suffragette movement. 
Oh, really? But it 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 is weird, though, right? I mean, because... Uh, no, it's super weirdly common. I think that's where you get phrases like, you know, women who don't help other women, there's a special place in hell for them. Because it's, like, so weirdly common, even now. I mean, I get stuff on my Facebook page now that is still very much, like, women's places in the kitchen and raising kids. And they're not saying it ironically. They're saying it, and it's, it's, it's women saying it. Biblically, we should honor our men and all this kind of stuff like it's very and i'm not friends with weird people that i thought it's like ads and stuff that are coming up on my page it's very weird it'd be a misnomer to assume that women all supported the vote that's true i mean agnes is proof of that i appreciate agnes's response from the point of view of it's all about your approach and so I can kind of take it from that. Like, she's not against the vote, but she cares about how we get there. That's fair. That, and that's fair. And an and, and important and consistent part of her personality. The how matters. The goals do not outweigh the means for Agnes. The means count very much. Let's circle back, though, to Peggy, though, which is I played that clip because you mentioned that she's this engine of change and may be happier in a half-life existence. And to be fair, I want to be clear. That's a half-life existence in what Mrs. Scott from, is viewing From it. Dorothy Scott's point yeah. of view. Yes, yes, yes. That, for sure. Which, again, I don't know that I fully agree with that. From If you were to ask Peggy, I would say Peggy would sit, tell you the potential to smash all of the walls are there. Don't know that Peggy would... would automatically subscribe to can't find a husband and a family in Manhattan. She's never going to find the globe and, and you know, the partners that she can find in places like that if she goes back and just sort of resigns herself to just doing what how it's always been done. So, you know, in order to have a voice, in order to feel like she can say something new and fresh, she has to be in a place that isn't going to want her to just say the same thing. It reminds me of this clip from uh, from Agnes, actually, from the pilot from the first episode. She can be so like him at times. She speaks and I hear Henry's voice challenging everything just as he did. And look how that turned out. Well, I like her strong views. I like her energy. Don't worry, Agnes. She's clever. She'll learn the rules. Will she? Revolutions are launched by clever people with strong views and excess energy. <laughs> They're talking about Marion in that clip, but Peggy is the embodiment of that entire clip. 100%. Yes. And putting herself in the in the awkward position of living in the Van Ryan household also ha affords her opportunities like she has in this in this episode of going to Dansville, which she would never have if she was a reporter living in Brooklyn. No one would ever give the, her that opportunity. But because she's going as like a helper, you know, to marry in a, an escort, if you will, a chaperone in some ways, then she's getting her foot in the door in a completely different way. I'm glad that you said that because that was an interesting little scene where Agnes kind of insinuates that she wants Peggy to spy on Marion and keep her safe because she doesn't trust Aurora. This episode could have been called Spies Like Us, I swear. There's at least three spies asked to spy. <laughs> so that's interesting that, that Agnes would be so bold because that does seem a more forward approach than she would normally give. But I want to actually focus on the other part of the conversation, this, this way that Agnes continues to encourage Peggy, even if she doesn't want to note the details, the overall encouragement and, and, and admiration she has for Peggy. It's very good of you to accompany Miss Marion in her quest. I'm glad to go. I intend to hear Miss Barton speak and 
to ask her some questions. If this is for your journalistic endeavors, please don't tell me more than I want to know. Very well. You're a determined young woman, aren't you, Miss Scott? Is that wrong? Not at all. You'll meet obstacles in your way. You're a colored woman, to name two of them. You need determination to get anywhere. Miss Marion is determined too, but she can be reckless. That is why I'm counting on you. I've been reckless in the past. Then you'll know what I mean. I will not spy on her, Mrs. Van Ryan. I'm not asking you to spy. Just make sure she's safe. Hey, Carolyn. Yes? Can you pass me my Sherlock Holmes double-billed detective hat? Oh, sure. Here you go. Here you go. Oh, God, that's the sound it makes for putting on your hat? It's, it's fitted, so it What's makes a sucking sound. going on with your sound. head? <laughs> it's, you know, it's a fitted hat, so it sucks right to my head. We have Marion talking to Dorothy. Mr. Scott forced Peggy into a series of events she regrets. Peggy to Agnes. I've been reckless before in my life. Peggy talking to Marion about her first love that, quote, changed my life. A boy named Elias Finn that her parents didn't approve of. Yeah, Sherlock, what do you got? I'm starting to feel like this Elias Finn we hear may be the the object of or involved with Peggy's mystery. Why did she involve Mr. Rakes? We haven't talked about that recently. We haven't had a lot of information to go on lately. All of these pieces together, I'm, I'm feeling like Elias Finn is a name we're going to hear before. What did you think of that conversation where Marion actually, uh, Peggy finally does open up to Marion and tells her about this love, Elias Finn, that changed her life? It was a very uh, vulnerable moment that they were both having. I mean, I'm sure we will delve into Mr. Rakes, but I mean, obviously it was happening right after they were in the doorway there. Marion and, and Peggy were kind of having, you know, a bonding moment of like, oh my God, you just totally witnessed something that was like crazy. I didn't think it was unusual for her to sort of spread a little bit more information there. I hear what you're saying, and I can remember way back when, when we were talking about this mystery, I said, would it be reductive to think this is going to be that her parents simply did not approve of a, of a guy, and that that's what this is going to be all about? And it's sounding like that's what it is It is starting to be here. Um, there's got to be more to this story, because, uh, you know, now that we fully understand the life that she had in Brooklyn, and she was in, you know, this little place in in uh, Pennsylvania in Doylesville you know something brought her there and created a situation where she was far away from home for some reason so there's definitely more here it would not be weird to me if these two ran off because why in the world is this city girl in a small town in Pennsylvania so I'm looking forward to getting more clues do you feel like you have you have more or that Elias maybe was run off not that they ran off but maybe that was run off sure it was disapproved of now it, it makes sense that you would hire a lawyer maybe to find someone that and if you were to do that obviously you wouldn't want to use a lawyer that's going to get back to your father a powerful man in the community mm -hmm. so because if he didn't approve which he says he you know my parents didn't approve of him one more piece to my Sherlock puzzle because I think it it adds a tone if not actual information Marion advises Peggy towards the end of the episode says to her Make up with your father before it's too late because you won't want to carry around that burden if you don't and he passes and you haven't made up. She advises her to, against that burden that she's going to carry of regret. Peggy's response is it can't be any heavier than the burden that she's already carrying around now. Mm. 
something happened to Elias Finn is my prediction. I'm feeling something happened to Elias Finn that Mr. Scott was involved in because it has to be something significant. It can't just be, you can't see that Finn boy anymore. It has to be something more than that for, for her to act this way and to treat it with the seriousness of this. She's not a schoolgirl flitting at her first crush. This is going to, it's going to be something significant. Mr. Scott did something to her or to, or to this boy that she loved, I think. That's what I'm feeling. When she was closing the door and they said the thing about your, your suspicions were confirmed, that is really still like needling my brain. Like mm. it's more than just they, they didn't approve that, that some very sketchy happening went on here and that Peggy has an inkling of what happened, but she needs help. She needs more information. So that is where I'm, I'm heading with Peggy in terms of like, you know, whether the man disappeared, you know, under weird circumstances. Or I mean, something something happened that is creating this extra layer of not just parents disapprove. We ran off. I'm, for some reason, I'm back. There's got to be like a mysterious circumstance was created, uh, uh, and and now we have to un- unravel it. Something that she couldn't do in Doylestown by herself, or couldn't figure out by herself. Something that a lawyer would have access to information on that she couldn't plot thickens it feels like adult scooby-doo like i'm very i'm very into the mystery of it all well and a white man can ask a lot more questions than a black woman and during this time most especially a lawyer can ask questions around that peggy can't ask and and it is a pretty convoluted route to figure out that it's peggy asking the questions if tom rakes is actually the one asking in pennsylvania you know she she kind of hit her tracks well in terms of of who's the actual asker that's very Scooby-Doo. Oh, my God. What if she takes off Mr. Rakes' mask and it's Elias Finn? Oh, my God. I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling young women say, changing the world. her mask off and it turns out to be like Elias Finn? <gasps> what if Peggy takes her mask off and it turns out that she is Aunt Agnes? Oh, my God. She works for herself. Yeah, she, she dictates <laughs> to herself. Oh, my God. She has, like, a split personality. She stands, like, on each side of the room. Yes. Take like, this down. And then she goes on the other side of the room. It's like Norman writing. and his mother. Yeah, yes, exactly. mother. Exactly. Peggy was on fire in this episode because not only was she laying herself vulnerable to Marion and, and giving out this information at the end of the episode, she asks Marion a question that you and I were musing just last week about Mr. Rakes. And she says point blank to Marion. Do you think that Mr. Rakes would be willing to give up high society for you two to be together? He seems to have taken to it. Do you think that he will give it up if he needs to, to be together? Because this idea of if Marion and, and Mr. Rakes go off together and, and Marion tells Mr. Rakes this, you know, later on, we're going to be piss poor penny, you know, penniless. If we get married, you can't count on the life that you're building now. Interesting question from Peggy to ask. I like that she asked it. That's a good friend question, a hard question that only a friend would ask. But it's also something you and I were talking about. How are you feeling about Mr. Rakes and his intentions? Tom has been bothering me since we've been in the opera boxes when he comes in and he's super smiley and he's talking to her, talking to Marion and everything seems cool. And then he goes back to the other box and the way that he looks over his shoulder to her and he gives this smile on one hand. 
some people might have taken it like, oh, he's just being friendly. But Marion takes it like I was taking it, which she gets this like, uh, I'm smelling a fart look on her face. Like, I am super uncomfortable with how comfortable he is in that other box. He just asked me to marry him. He is snuggled up with this other woman right in front of me, and he's grinning at me like... You <laughs> and proclaiming to be doing all of it for me. Yeah, I can't even hear that noise. Like that's that's like so beyond. I can't well, even. Well, it's extra gross. Isn't it it is like... extra gross. But it's like I that part would have flown over my head. That look would have like sent up all the hairs on the back of my neck. Like he should look at me with these eyes that are like, I wish I was over with you. Not this big grin, like get a load of this. Something about Rakes now has really, really since that episode and that look, I have felt worse and worse about him. And now that Peggy is is pointing out for the whole audience, what we've already talked about, these people don't have any money. Like they both need to marry people with money if they want to stay in the society. She's painting it for the audience so clearly. These two are can't possibly work out and stay in this society level. Like, it's not possible. So who's going to be the problem? Is Marion the one who's going to say money is more important? I've got to marry for money. I've got to stay here. Or is Rakes going to become the person who says, hey, I'm really enjoying this. I don't want to end up, you know, falling out here. He says we can still be invited to parties. He's already trying to he's already trying to see how he can make it work. Cuz he, he is, but- which which gives, he's an addict, right? He's addicted to the lifestyle already. Like, as two single people, they seem to be okay, kind of rising the ranks on their own. But somehow, if they marry, it seems to solidify this pauper status. Is it just because, as single people, they still have, like, this potential? Like, they're still fascinating to people. They can still rise the ranks and be invited to stuff because they're kind of still on the market. But once they get married, they're just, like, a a couple who doesn't have any money. Like, nobody's interested in you two. Right. I think it's a little bit of why it was part of... Agnes putting down Cornelius Eckert III uh, when he came for his meal ticket in the form of Ada. Remember, Agnes's dressing down of him was if Ada was to get married, she'd have to leave this house and then she would have no access to money that she has lived on. I think it's a little bit the same. I, I think it's exactly the same. Okay, so that and that easily explains Marion like super quick. But Rakes, why does it change his status if he has a wife? Because he's off the market? Because right now he's getting invited to all these things because he is an eligible bachelor. He still okay, doesn't so, have any so money. So I'm saying it right. Right, so right, right. right. Yeah, he's, he's eligible. He's eligible. So, and he, he still has no money. He just has prospects. He gets married. The bachelor status goes. And he's still poor because he hasn't arrived yet. He doesn't even – he's not even on track yet to become like a George Russell, you know, making new money fortune. He's got potential for it, but he hasn't actually done it yet. You know, his name's not on the law firm that he's working in. So, yeah, so both things that are getting him invited to parties will go away because his bachelor status is what his bachelor status and his good looks are what getting him invited to Skirmerhorn's box and such. I'm glad Peggy brought this question up. I hope it's something that Marion reflects on. I give Marion credit. She must be thinking about it because she brings it up to Tom later on in the episode when they're walking down the hallway. She says to him, you have to understand all of this may go away. 
And if we were to get married, we would be penniless. And that's when he starts rationalizing, well, we could still get invited to parties and it doesn't all have to go. Not necessarily. He's he's like looking for his next fix, right? Doesn't yeah, that but he's got to like? say anything in that situation. I mean, come on. When it turns out that he's actually been entertaining the idea that he is going to have sex with her, that's why he came on the Clara Barton tour was for sex at a Marion. I was like, really? Although I got to say, he was like munching on her face. Like he was like, he was really, really going after it. Guys, I, if you're, if you are squeamish, I, I don't want to offend. So cover your ears for the next 10 seconds. If Peggy doesn't show up there, he is going to be finger banging away right in that hallway. He was full on auga, auga horn dog. He was about to get it on. I was offended on Marion's behalf because this was overly bold for this time. You know, I, I, we learned a word over in 1883 this week, rapacious. Tom Rakes is acting as like a rapacious man in this hallway. I found it very off-putting. Too forward, too bold. I've, I've listened to the episodes. I have found him too much all along. This was too sexually forward for me. And too dismissive and willing to wreck Marion's reputation. That's the thing. Like, she's not a married woman, and a lot of other people are there. That They're, they're all there together. Like, this isn't very secretive at all, what he's doing. Everyone knows this man came on this trip. Everyone knows he has eyes for Marion. Everyone does. Invited himself. Arranged the trip. He got himself invited by arranging the entire trip for all of them. So think about this, though. I mean, and so he doesn't really care. Either he's going to trap, like, trap her into marrying him or he just doesn't care she's just going to be thrown off and he's going to take off for the next check not cool i i was just i was like tom rakes your your ambition adventurousness is showing through in a way that he's an adventurer in the worst kind of way in this one and actus is never wrong she called it she called it episodes ago she did now is this a good example of peggy then being a good friend because marion asked her should i be offended by him being so bold and peggy responds let me see if i get it right Yes, be offended if it's not what you wanted. No, don't be offended if your lust for him is as much as it was as his his is for you is that good just friend advice like i'm not going to tell you what i really think because i have to imagine peggy thinks this is too forward and too bold and not safe the exact thing agnes is worried about when she sends her on this trip or encourages her to spy on her so mm. is peggy being good friend here giving good advice or is she you know well, not I mean, what you should be saying. it sounds silly a little bit where it's like, well, it depends on how you feel, you know, but the little extra that, that you didn't add was if he thinks he can have you so easily. That's yes, the thing. Sorry, like, that so that makes it feel like, you know, basically in today's language is like if if he thinks you're you are easy, then in that case, yeah, you should feel embarrassed if it's just like you two are in love together and you just can't wait. OK, well, then that's like passionate and exciting. It does matter how Marion feels about the situation to be honest with you i'm unclear if she loves tom or not it doesn't seem like she actually knows which to me he's asked you to marry him he's kissing you passionately at the door if nothing has bubbled to the surface as like very clear if you love him then you don't love him well remember the moon face right remember in the in the opera box Mm -mm. see that's not well, love. She said, well no 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 well she, it, it is to her she's thinking it's love though she's convincing herself she's in love with him she's the one who gets him and invites to lunch with ward McAllister. she's the one who goes to aurora 
and says, could you also get an invite for Tom Rakes? And Aurora's like, It doesn't mean that her feelings are clear to her. Like, that's what I'm trying to say. But the thing is, is if you're in love with someone, if you're standing at a bedroom door with someone and they kiss you like that, you know how you feel. I'm not I'm not going to get gross (laughs) because I don't feel like our Gilded Age listeners are at that level. But for me, I'm like, I just, you know. Subscribe to our Patreon. Did you respond to this man or not? Like, you know, if you're interested in this guy. So there's something about this whole thing that's just like, I am unclear if Marion is interested in him at this level. Saying I want to keep him as a possibility is not the same. And I think I think that's as clear as she has been is I want to help him continue to ascend in society and remain an option that she's she is still I mean let's play this clip this is I was calling this the poetry off between Ada and Marion where she gets where Ada always sly Ada she comes and tries to find out who's really coming to the Ward McAllister lunch while we're alone who's actually going to Aurora's luncheon Tom Riggs was it rather sly, not to say? I don't want Aunt Agnes to take against him before they get to know each other. She's taken against him already, as you were aware. So you're too late to head that off at the pass. But you haven't. Have you? He's not what we've planned. I can't deceive you there. The best laid schemes in my Sidman gang off to Glay. Robbie Burns. Love makes fools of all of us. William Thackeray. Hot burn. (laughs) That scene made me really watch it a couple of times because for one thing, I found it fascinating costuming wise that Ada and Marion were wearing variations on the same dress. Their hair looked so similar to me. There was some sort of mirroring going on here, some sort of reflection between the two of them that I'm trying to put my hands around. I think there's a foreshadowing here. I'm scared of what that foreshadowing could be, but there's something going on here in the way that they dressed them that made me think, what are we supposed to be seeing? Even the fact that they're both using poetry as their as their backing and everything like, Mike, are we setting Marion up to go down a path of Aunt Ada? The show has always shown Ada as this cautionary tale for what could be if you don't do society correctly if you don't make the right match and find a man to take you out of your family's house and go live your own life well the path then for you is ada spinsterhood and dressing them the same it's it's a little bit like i I don't know why i end up making sci-fi references on the show but it's when like little anakin skywalker had the shadow of darth vader when the first when phantom menace star wars phantom menace came out you know it's this this is your future kind of thing. I so I think you're dead on. I think Marion, there is a path, a very real pathway where she gets Ada's life, where she never figures it out. She and she never leaves the Van Rhine's house. I think it's clever to show it through costuming. I mean, to actually have her practically dress up as Aunt Ada. Wow. That, I mean, it, visually, it was stunning. Those dresses are beautiful. But, I mean, instantly it was like, why are they wearing the exact same kind of color scheme? What is happening here? Before the show is, is done and, and over with, and so happy we have a season two coming, I want Ada to find love. I I really do. She's such a sweet woman with so much wisdom, 
to impart to the right man, she could make someone really happy. I don't know that Agnes would ever let that be, but I really hope she finds love. More than any other character, I, I really hope she finds someone. Because I feel like she's got so much there to give that's just being wasted. Pumpkin's only going to live for so long. She needs to find love. <laughs> uh, oh, I should say, because I didn't know, I had to look it up. So the Robert Burns poem that Marion is quoting from, The Best Laid Schemes of Mice and Men, Gang uh, Affleck Lay, is, is called To a Mouse by Robert Burns. And the William Thackeray quote is from chapter four of his book, History of Pendennis. So it's actually love, uh, thus love makes fools of us all, big and little. I thought you'd like the big and little part. <laughs> you did think that? I did think that. <laughs> I, that. I don't know you like thinking of things in big and little well let's say so like in grand gestures and in the little moments you can act like an idiot oh see i was thinking of more like older young i was thinking them using it makes fools of us all Go, that's what poetry old. is so amazing anyone could interpret it in their own way uh, uh is that right can we all interpret it in our own way we can <laughs> Let's head over to Bertha and her long ladder that she has begun to climb. If episode four was that mid-season point for Marion, I think this is the episode really that is Bertha's mid-season. She finally gets Ward McAllister in the same room with her. I think it's a big freaking deal for her. I got to tell you, I'm curious how you took this clip. I want to play this clip. This is when she gets the Lotus, the letter from Ward that she will attend a lunch with her. And she's explaining it to George. I felt like this was the first time George had a little concern about how his wife was talking about society and the gatekeeping of it all. You're very quiet. Mr. McAllister has confirmed that he's coming to Mrs. Fane's luncheon. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let the trumpets sound. You laugh, but tomorrow I'm going to be at a luncheon with Ward McAllister. Means a lot to me, George. In which case, of course, it means a lot to me. We are getting there, don't you see? All the things we promised ourselves when we first married. The things you promised yourself. The point is, we're finally getting to where we belong. I always felt I was where I belonged. Because I had you. You mean you needed me to steer us in the right direction? And now lunch with Mr. McAllister will make your dreams come true? He's the gatekeeper, so yes, it could. And I will make it my business to see that it does. He gives that hum, but you have to really watch it. He kind of cocks his head, and he thinks to himself, this is the first time he's, he's giving out all of the, all of my dreams came true when I had you. And she's responding with, Ward McAllister holds the key to all of my dreams coming true. It's it's a it's an imbalance that he hasn't really hit him before. Yeah, a thousand percent. Another man's in the room. This was the first time it seemed anyway it hit him where her ambition may outstrip their joint ambition. Well, I think Gladys said it best. You want more from me than I want from myself. Uh, I want to give you the world and I will do anything. I think I think you deserve the world and I will do anything to get it for you. Now, that sounds like hyperbole coming out of most parents' mouths, but out of Bertha's mouth, that sounds exactly like the kind of thing like she would do. I don't know. It was interesting. It was the first time that they ha weren't a completely support. Like, I didn't get the same unconditional support from George in that. He almost seemed a little disturbed by that comment for the first time ever. And, and it's much more of a facial cue than you even get. But you do hear the, hmm. 
which is not a sound he makes. George Russell doesn't say, hmm, you know, but I don't know. It, it struck me as a little weird. She's breathless at the start of that clip. She's like having like a fanboy moment, like New Kids on the Block just wrote her, you know? Well, I mean, are you downplaying that or do you mean that? Like, oh, you no, understand I, it. I, no, I, I understand why she's having that. But this is a woman who is extremely composed all the time. I don't think George is used to seeing his wife in this fanboy state. You know, these people's pulse doesn't rise even while they're cutting, you know, and, and drawing blood. Their pulses don't rise. And here she is. She's having like a fangirl moment right. to, to George. And I think that disturbed him. I think I think seeing her so be so undone by this man accepting a lunch invitation, I think unnerved him a little bit. Well, I personally loved the addition of Nathan Lane. Ward McAllister was everything I needed. I wanted him there. I love how every single time that Nathan Lane is a guest star and I saw him over on Only Murders in the Building, every time he comes on, I love it because the other actors can't help themselves but show their delight that they're having a scene with him. So no matter what the scene is, there's always these kind of like flush cheeks, like extra smiley energy that you can tell is not it's not the character it's the actor who's like so excited to be having this scene with him i loved his laugh that punctuated like thing that he did love the whole thing he brought an energy and like a, a sassiness and a funny like edgy um you know like i totally want to sit next to him at every party element that i needed and i wanted at this party uh, let's play two clips. This is the first one of Aurora talking about the role Ward plays, and then we're going to hear a clip of Ward himself getting right to the heart of the matter about what Bertha needs to do to improve her lot. Is that his role? He is Cerberus, snarling and growling to protect his mystic rose, as he likes to call her. Is Mrs. Astor aware of all this? She is when it suits her. She uses him to filter the new arrivals. So Mr. McAllister's opinion is important? Is any of it important? Now, that seems like a like a passing line, but when we spoke to Kelly O'Hara, when I spoke to Kelly O'Hara, she actually singled out that line as one of the biggest indicators of how Aurora hopes to be a disruptor. That That within her chest is a Bertha beating, waiting to escape, that she wants to be more like a bold Bertha Russell who is shaking things up. This, Her acknowledging out loud, is any of this really important or is this really just all bullshit that we do to get by? So interesting to see it come up here in the context of War McAllister being the Cerberus protecting his Mystic Rose. By the way, definitely feel like we should call you Mystic Rose. I'm just saying. That's a bit much. We get to see Cerberus in action here. I want to. I want to get your take on how he nails perfectly exactly what Bertha needs from him. Beautifully done, Mrs. Fain's to be congratulated. You have a good cook. Oh, hadn't you better ask my guests? Do I know them? How can I answer that? Shall I tell you what I think, Mrs. Russell? I think you have a very good chef, French, of course. Of course. And a fine palace of a house. But I don't believe your guest list is quite what you would like it to be. Mr. McAllister, you see through me as if I were glass. We can mend that. You and Mrs. Astor? <laughs> me and the people I will introduce you to. I'd love to think you would be my protector. For now, but fairly soon, I'd say you'll be protecting me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mrs. Russell and Mr. McAllister seem to be getting on well. Why wouldn't they when they are more or less the same person? Before that, he walks in the room and he singles out Mr. Rakes right away. And he says, I hope I can be a help to you. And to Bertha says, I don't want to know the facts of your husband's business. I just want to know the gossip. Put that together with him getting right to the heart of the matter of your guest list isn't where you need it to be. And I can help you with that. Warren McAllister, a lot of Colonel <laughs> Sanders, a lot of Colonel Sanders, like all the spices, you know? Yeah, he had a lot of energy. I loved it. But knows exactly what the fuck is up, though. But am I right? that that was like Carrie Coon loving that Nathan Lane was oh talking God, to her. Yeah. Yes. It wasn't Bertha and, you know, Ward McAllister. It was like so, the fact that she was so honest and said like, you can see right through me, that whole thing. Like, I didn't even know that Bertha could be so honest like that, you know, and let her guard down and accept his help. So just like in front of everyone, like that was a big moment. Ward McAllister, for those that don't know, Ward McAllister is a real person, but, you know, the 400 uh, and, and apocryphal people say it was the 400 people that were able to fill Mrs. Astor's ballroom. That's how the 400 came up. But in fact, it was Ward McAllister who gave the quote to the New York Times years later, actually, after where this show takes place. He says he's talking about the people who are fit for polite society. And he actually puts a number. The number actually comes in at like 375 or so. But essentially, it became the 400. And he actually wrote a list of the 400 people, Mr. and Mrs. is a, a, a full list. Like, he wrote it down. They published it in the New York Times. You can look up the archive of the 400 that were fit for polite society. Moore McAllister came up with that. You'll hear the 400 mentioned all the time. That's him. This is a real guy who really was the right hand of Mrs. Astor, really was this Cerberus guard dog to, to high society. Having Nathan Lane play it, a larger-than-life guy as an actor play this larger-than-life character really is genius casting, and I think he kills it here. And he does seem to be just having so much fun and everyone around him also. I'm excited to see more of him. They've dangled him for us for five episodes, so I was so excited to finally get to see him tonight. It was finally the, like, linchpin in how we can finally get up this ladder, and it was exciting to have that character, to even have sort of, like, I don't know, it felt like playing, like, a video game, and all of a sudden we had some sort of, like, little code to put in, and we were, like, left leveling up like super hard like it was really exciting to get that much movement in one luncheon up up down down baby ward's got the keys to the kingdom a b a b that's it <laughs> this is why i think this was the mid-season moment for bertha this is her getting to to start to climb the hill in earnest Getting in the same room with War McAllister is the beginning of the ascent that she has waited all season to make. Now she can actually begin to climb now that she's met him. And seemingly it's gone well. And let's not ignore, because it was downplayed very much once we walked through the door, you know, after his little comment to Rakes, I mean, Marion got him in front of the right people that day. Tom is able to get on Ward's radar and have like a moment here where perhaps he could actually benefit from, right um, from this lunch. No, he says it, but it's important for the audience to remember right. that Marion did that. Marion yes. pulled those strings and got him there. And so let's see, you know, as she continues, is Tom... Tom just playing her and and using her for these kind of pulls. Now, he, we never see him like ask, like, hey, could you get me into that lunch or anything like that? But clearly, by proposing marriage and, and trying to say, like, you know, if, if only we could just get up this ladder together kind of thing, she is feeling compelled to look for opportunities to help him. What will that mean? 
it is no small thing that she's the reason he gets invited to this lunch with Ward McAllister, that Ward McAllister approaches Tom Rakes before even approaching Bertha and says to him, I think our, I says, I hope I can be of help to you. There's that famous quote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You know, you said it so well, and I want to, I want to highlight it and bold it and underline it. He didn't ask for any of this. Mr. Rakes doesn't ask for these helping hands. They're just coming to him. And it's like, like the devil, right? He's just, he just is making things happen and manipulating it without actually having to dirty his hands at all. No one can look at him and say, you asked to be at this party. He's like, no, I didn't. I just received this lunch. Asking this woman to marry him created an unspoken obligation to one another to help each other out at the very least. And so while he didn't ask for this specific favor, he is in theory offering all I have to you. So let's fill up that basket so I have a lot to give you. But I'm only doing it to give it to you. So you should help me fill it. Right. I'm striving to be worthy to your aunt. Mm-hmm. A lunch with Warren McAllister would really help that strive. Right. So manipulation. Yes. It's all behind the scenes pulling strings. Subtle. The reason that everyone is gathering beyond lunch is we're doing some Red Cross planning here. There is this trip to Dansville. This is where we get to the title of the episode, which was Charity Has Two Functions. Just because it's a great Agnes quote that gets to the heart of the way things really are in a wonderful Agnes kind of way. I want to play this quote, but let's talk about afterwards. Clara Barton, the Red Cross and Society Machinations. And where does all this take place? Miss Barton opened the first Red Cross branch in Dansville last year, so I expect it'll be more organized from now on. Dansville, New York? She's holding a meeting there soon to make an announcement. Aurora Fane's going, and she's been a champion of Miss Barton from the start. And you'd like to accompany her? I would. I feel strongly about it. Really, Aunt Agnes, anyone would think you were against charity. Charity has two functions in our world, my dear. The first is to raise funds for the less fortunate, which is wholly good. The second is to provide a ladder for people to climb into society who do not belong there. And that is wholly bad? Not wholly, perhaps, but it should give us pause. Very well, you may go. But ask Miss Scott to accompany you. I don't entirely trust Aurora these days. I like when the show shows these women to be more than just about the society of it all and show their pragmatic business side, though, too. Because it's easy to forget that it's just about the lunches or the dresses or the corsets. You know, it's charity is fine. Charity is good. But it's also let's not pretend like it's not a social climbing tool either. Right. And Clara Barton echoes this later on in the episode. We can, we can play the clip now because Clara Barton embodies everything Agnes says here because she acknowledges, well, you know, we're here to raise money because charity is good. But I also understand how society works. And hey, can you get Mrs. Chamberlain to donate? Because I understand, I understand why Mrs. Russell is here, that she's using us to climb the ladder. And I'm willing to, you know, jump into bed with anyone I need to who's going to write me a big check. Keep that clip from Agnes in your head. Let's play Clara Barton from later on. I'm sorry about Anne Morris. I know about the quarrel, if that's what you mean. You mustn't listen to everything she says about Mrs. Russell. Before you think me a simpleton. I am well aware that Mrs. Russell is using the charity ladder to climb into the ballrooms of New York. Well, uh, I can still be grateful she chose my charity to be that ladder. I agree. One thing I must ask, 
Do any of you know Mrs. Chamberlain? That is, Mrs. Augustus Chamberlain? Not really. She has been generous to charity in the past, I know, but we... If she wants, she can be very generous indeed. And I am fully aware of her reputation. I've met her a few times. Could you interest her in my cause? I can try. Aunt Agnes would never forgive me. Surely there's more at stake here than Aunt Agnes's smelling salts. I couldn't put it better myself. Poor Aurora looked like she was going to throw up all over that table. <laughs> she was like, this is all making me so freaking uncomfortable. I mean, on the heels of having to put Ann Morris in her place and say, hey, you're looking like a fool. Cut it out. You don't even know what's going on here. Stop acting like this. And now she's having to have this meal where we're all going to go behind, you know, Aunt Agnes's back and, and do all these things. Oh, my God. Poor Aurora. <laughs> that was a whole scene. But you know what? everything Claire Barton was straight on I loved that she said I can still be grateful she picked my charity that's the most important thing to Barton and this entire storyline is yeah she's aware she's being used but she's okay with it because at least it's she's the charity that's receiving the money that's fine with her and it works for her everybody's using everybody else she knows that she's using them she doesn't care because at the end of the day the soldiers and the people who have disasters need help and that's what Claire is doing so she's playing the game they're getting three branches out of the Russell donation not just the one that she had planned on. So is it really even being used if you're also getting something out of it? Or is that just a business transaction where both parties get something? She's she's giving a service and she's getting paid for it, right? I mean, I guess I understand how she's using it. I, I, I know she's using me to enter and climb the social ladder, but I'm not going to say anything because I'm opening up three branches of the Red Cross. That's what I'm in the business for. I love it. I thought it was extremely pragmatic and I, I really liked her whole very straightforward approach to it. Uh, it was also right in line with what Agnes said, right? It was just it was just looking at the coin from a slightly different angle from what Agnes said at the beginning of the episode about charity having two functions. I'm so happy you brought up Aurora and Anne because these two both look like they sucked on lemons. Anne's more sour than Aurora's. But when Peggy starts asking Clara questions and is interviewing, the both of them have this what the fuck is going on here faces on it was it was so priceless it made me laugh out loud how uncomfortable and confused they both were i want to play the clip from ann though because she throws out another irish dig that we last heard larry make at at his mother and i'm just so curious where all this is coming from very good ann you are a fool you should never pick a fight before you know the facts i know the facts my husband is dead. That's a fact. My house is sold. My money is gone. And now Thank you'll you turn your back on me like all the others, just to keep in with this potato digger's daughter. You'll deny it, but you will. Is she wrong about being thrown over? Probably not. But I don't know where she gets off at this stage of throwing out potato digger daughter comments. Well, aren't we in the stage of Irish need not apply? You know, there's certainly a lot of prejudice against Irish people in New York City. So, you know, I don't think it's so far off base. It's a nasty remark to make, given how other people, you know, view the Irish at this point. So, right. I'm just thinking because Larry made this exact comment, right? He made the, I, yeah. I, which, which still really bothered me, really, really bothered me when he made that comment to his mother. And it also bothered me that he didn't get beat the shit out of it for 
for making the comment either. But it was so much nastier hearing it come out of her mouth. Mrs. Morris has a lot to be upset about. I, I do not blame her for being angry and bitter. I'm quite surprised she showed up at this event, to, to be honest with you. But we said in our last episode, she was going to linger. She was going to be this force, you know, sitting around, making everyone look at her with her morning garb on, and that everyone was going to put up with that for some period of time that they were going to allow her to have this morning time and allow her to be around. But she's obviously so angry and, and blames Bertha. I mean, say murderer, murderer. I mean, that, that's, that's a lot on her hands. There's a lot to be saying, but I think people, they will not be able to stomach her attitude very much longer. I mean, Aurora is her very best buddy for all intents and purposes. And here she is saying, you're acting like a fool. Well, uh, yeah, the situation you've got to stop. If your best bud is whispering that in your ear, you're, you're nearing the end of the line. And at the end of that, as they're heading off to go to the hospital and start to say that she's it's not over yet that she's still gonna beat bertha aurora cuts her off she says she's already beaten you like again this is your like, best friend stop, like, stop embarrassing it. yourself well at this point you look like someone like mr fane said you played the game and you lost i and we all understand i mean we're saying this very casually because it's a tv show but obviously ann morris has lost her husband has lost her home if you take it in real life she has every right to be losing her mind in this situation however given the tv show portion of it all Everyone's just sick of this, you know, and she if she thinks she can do something to get back at Mrs. Russell or the Russell family in these moments, this isn't where she's going to get her. I think she'd be better off teaming up with Turner at some other point in time and really doing some Russell harm. But right now, I think that she is uh, she's a mess. You know, she she's going to have to be quiet in order to even be allowed to stick around. Right, right. And interesting. And, and think to that dinner scene where I played the clip about Clara. You know, I know I am aware of the squabble. You know, that's how it starts off because Aurora apologizes for Anne's remarks. Who's not at the table is Anne Morris. Why? Because she had to get back to the city. She can't linger and stay in hotels now. She, her house is sold. Her money is gone. She's got kids. She's got to get back. I mean, Dansville, uh, for those that are interested, Dansville is in the upper west portion of new york state it's about 300 miles from central park um you know danceville not close i mean they took a train there and then uh, you know a carriage and stuff but yeah she's got to get back she can't linger like she would have just a few weeks ago and is gonna linger like we said though but she's definitely gonna atrophy eventually she's just gonna fall away unless she becomes deranged and unhinged and starts like throwing rotten fruit from the sidelines like maybe she takes to standing outside the russell's house throwing rotten fruit as her job during the day i don't know I don't know where she goes from here, but she is so angry on top of her morning. In a situation where invitations are highly sought after, you cannot make people uncomfortable every second. You're, you will simply stop getting the invitation. Let's go back to the Russell house and talk about young Gladys. We talked a little bit about last week about how Edelheid, the maid, was going to be conniving to try and become, it looked like, the new... Conniving's too harsh. Let's say just, just trying to play her cards Working right. the system, right? Doing what she can. Trying to play her can... cards right in order to be in, in the right place at the right time. Because there's plenty of characters in this story that deserve the Connive, descriptor conniving. But, uh, you know, she's she's more just, she's, she sees an opportunity and she's trying to be there. This is also another situation where the concept of... Who who's going to be a spy comes up again. And I I was like, man, how many times is someone going to ask to spy on someone else? This whole storyline, 
I liked a lot because this is a theme that Lord Fellows would write about a lot in Downton Abbey. The downstairs staff, the servants of the household and their promotion, especially among the younger staff, you saw it throughout the five, six seasons of Downton Abbey. At some point, they would wake up and be like, I don't want to be the cook's assistant or I don't want to be a maid. I want to go do something else. I want to improve my lot. Now, some of them were perfectly happy, and especially the older people who had done it and was all they ever knew. But part of this you know young person wants to change the way things are done and break the mold was a theme that he wrote he acted out a lot in Downton Abbey I'm really happy to see it here through Adelheide you know I'd love to see Jack and Bridget have some kind of the same renaissance themselves over in the Van Rijn house seems like harder in the Van Rijn house to break the mold than the Russell house but I'm really happy for Adelaide here I mean she gets to put on the ladies maid outfit she's just beaming yes she's using Turner as her guide which is probably not the best but also like she's so happy I'm happy for I found myself smiling at how happy she was that she gets this job promotion what did you think of Gladys sticking up for herself at the beginning of the episode when Bertha, like a hawk, stops her daughter, uh, you know, at the door, says, take off your hat and I'll see you in the drawing room soon. Gladys essentially says, if you're not going to let me join high society, I have to find some high society for myself. That's the first time Gladys has really stood up to her mother that way. I felt sad for Gladys in that it was really the first depiction that we had that she's just literally sitting in her room all day. Like she's not. It's one thing to not come out to society as as a eligible woman for of marrying age. It's another thing to not be able to talk to anybody or do anything with anyone your age. Or You know, it just seemed like, wait a minute, she's just like on house arrest. That felt different to me than simply she's not out in society. I mean, they mean physically like she's not allowed out in society, <laughs> like like we're hiding her away. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. That was that's so harsh. Well, like, remember the inciting incident, though. She was found at a hotel with a boy. <laughs> she is. So she is right. Obviously, in this grounding stage with the whole situation. I just felt bad for her. I, on, I honestly I feel really bad for her. And George and Bertha. I mean, they're not quickly reaching any type of compromise on this. No, and I like that because we brought this up that this was the one area where these two had disagreed. And I like that it wasn't really resolved. They're still disagreeing. George is happy that she's getting a lady's maid now instead of a new governess. We have to talk about young, young Archie, who looks just like the biggest baby face ever. When he said he was 24, I choked on my soda because I was like, I don't know that he's ever shaved before, this young man. I was surprised they made him that old because, again, 41 is our, um, you know, age expectancy. So I was like, 24? Like, they're really making him quite old. I have a theory on the 24 because he adds to it, which is the same age my father was when he met my mother. Almost like it was, he was raised, it felt like he was raised that you won't find a wife until you're 24. But once you're in that age, that's when you have to get married because that's how we Baldwins do it. Yeah, okay, but they could have said they could have made him 18 and had him say that same line. Like, there's nothing special about that. So, okay, so say the Baldwins find their love at 18. But I just thought 24 was really pretty old for this situation. Yes. 
which is funny because Oscar says, isn't he a bit young for you when he's over at dinner and they're talking about Archie Baldwin? If you remember that well, dinner from a couple weeks ago. expecting him to already have his fortune, right? For Gladys to have, you know, a fortune to be adding to her own. So he needs to be coming with his own money with on the table, right? That would make him so much less scary to me that he, he was still like a young guy, like you were saying. Like he, he really hasn't made his fortune yet. He's still young. I think 22 would have made more sense because he would have been out of college and could have been calling himself an investment banker or a stockbroker at that point, but not having done it long enough where any kind of fortune was expected. Well, and also we're talking about money at the level that you have to come from like levels of generational money. It's more like when does your trust fund kick in? Oh, at 21, you know? And he's a son of a senior diplomat. He's not old money. He's not old world. He's not, it doesn't sound like he is a relative of the Stuyvesants or the Van Rensselaers or anything, you know? He's just from a respectable family, which is interesting because, again, this is this seems to continue to be an area where George and Bertha disagree. Uh, disagree. I mean, he takes him to the woodshed. He makes him the It Happened on Fifth Avenue offer, but he says later on to Bertha, you know, I did the deed, but it's I'm, I'm not sure I won't regret it because he seemed a decent fellow. George is not George is not fully on boardless. He did what his wife wanted and sent Archie, you know, gave him his indecent proposal, but he's not on board with it. He's not fully on board with it anyway. Let's listen to the uh, proposal that Archie makes. And again, man, I don't want to fuck with George. He, the beard and the eyes and the eyebrows, when, he's, when he talks, I just oof, makes me scared. As I say, I've discussed you with Mr. Seligman and he is prepared to take you on as a broker with excellent prospects. In a few years, you could be a rich man. I don't know what to say. But you won't regret it, Mr. Russell. I, I promise I will make sure Gladys There are has conditions. It. What are they, sir? Just tell me. You may send a final letter. And after that, you will never communicate with my daughter again. You will not see her. And if you encounter each other socially, you will avoid any contact, providing you can do so without causing comment. But I... I thought... You were mistaken, Mr. Bolton. <laughs> this is why you brought me here? I am sorry to say so, but it is. What if I refuse? If you refuse, which you are, of course, fully entitled to do, then I will make sure that you never work in the financial sector of our economy again. But that's what I do. Not if you turn down my offer. I mean, that's just not a guy you fuck with. Uh, head to our Facebook group once this episode drops. There'll be information I put out there about J&W Seligman Company and the Panama Canal and and their investment banking firm. This is, again, a real firm that he's offering a job here to young Archie to go join. He's basically saying, you'll be rich, but the price is you got to stay away from my daughter. How do you feel about this, knowing that George isn't fully on board with this? Are, are we breaking with Bertha here? Is this is this too far for Bertha to take this step at this point to young Archie? Well, it certainly perhaps mirrors something that's going on in the Scott home, which I feel like good storytellers often will show you some parallel like cycles of life, things that our families are going through. I think that there's a fair shot that we have a conversation between Gladys and George coming. That feels right. Some sort of like, what in the world do I do? You know, and I don't know if George will listen or not. I think you're right about George starting to raise an eyebrow at Bertha and then now being asked to do something that clearly Bertha is 100% steering 
hearing and whether or not George is going to feel happy about what he actually did and executed here, he might actually start having some resentment about having to do these things and what's happening and how the society side is affecting choices he's making that he doesn't really feel comfortable making. I do want to compare Archie and and Tom Rakes. You know, we have these these men who have been saying, I love this woman. She's the best woman, blah, blah, blah. What do you think, comparing them standing side by side, do we feel like Archie is a more authentic love, truly? Do we feel like, you know, Tom and his gestures look completely different than Archie? What do you think? I think he is much more sincere by nature of, sure, maybe he's not good enough for Bertha Russell and Bertha Russell's daughter, but Archie Baldwin is going to be fine. He does come from a respectable family. Maybe he's not rich. Diplomat's son? That's that's cachet. He's going to be okay. He doesn't need to be kissing up to Gladys Russell. So, And the way he speaks to George, I, I cut the beginning of the clip, Russell would have been too long, but George has to stop him and says, you're not courting me, you're courting my daughter. But the language he's using is very sincere love language. It None of it, none of it smells like code words for, I can't wait to get into your bank account. It all seems very sincere, I'm into your daughter. I don't have to be, I just am. I agree with you. And also, I'm not looking to get in bed with your daughter, like, well, which is a huge too. switch yeah. with Tom. Now, their ages do seem quite a bit different. I don't know that we've gotten an age for Marion. Do you know exactly? I don't know if we have an age for Marion. And, and we Gladys, we're just kind of guesstimating to be around like 18, right? I, I feel like Marion, I feel like Marion and Glad, Marion and Gladys are both around the same age. I feel like they're both in the 18, 19, 20 range. I cannot, I can't put my finger on Marion's age. She's, she's, she seems a little older than that. And, and, but I just can't quite, I, but maybe I have nothing to Maybe a little bit that. older, but not much though, because yeah, I, I was maybe a little bit older, but I wouldn't say much, maybe not much more than in her early twenties. I, I think they are, would definitely be considered peers of each other, if not the same exact age. Remember, Gladys should already be out already. She or should already be have had yeah, her Deb season. Which I think should have happened more like 16 Right, right. And it feels like that's more like it's been so long that we're at 18 or 19. People are like, what is happening? Like, why aren't No, you- for sure. Like, why can't you even come out to parties or do anything? Like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, you get that feel that there's she's almost going to get this, you know, stink lines on her as like what is wrong like why are they hiding that her russell girl they well, kinda, her why are they hiding her away like at that level like this seems a little bit weird yes. i don't know we'll be lucky if we get out of there without anybody saying like what is your problem yeah but now ward involved ward member she's her whole thing was until my ballroom was full now she didn't say that actually it was agnes that said she won't bring her out until she could fill the ballroom i think it was agnes that said that but agnes is 100 percent correct there and now that ward is involved maybe she starts moving towards that because she knows she has to bring gladys out she's just tried to micromanage the whole goddamn thing you know to the point of ridiculousness but you're right george is turning on her gladys is turning on her Adelheid and mrs bruce are turning on her Society's going to begin to turn on her what are you treating you're making this girl feel like a leper so mm-hmm. she's her back's going to get against the wall it feels like sooner rather than later yeah she's gonna have to act but i mean again we said the wheels are turning there this was a real pivotal moment with ward coming into the mix and actually we have some real traction for being able to move forward and that that was much needed otherwise i think a lot of these people were going to want to kill bertha for like what she's doing to everybody yes 
I'm worried about pushing George this way because this again, this is a first. This is an episode of first for me with George and Bertha. This is the first time George did something that he didn't really want to do that he did for his wife. Everything else he's done, he has either done without Bertha asking him on Bertha's behalf, like having Stanford White come to that horrible housewarming party, that ill-attended housewarming party, or they've been on the same page for and he's been happy to exact a pound of flesh on behalf of his wife, like bringing in her insults to the alderman. This is the first time that she has mandated something he do that he didn't really want to do because he's not on board with the way she's handling Gladys. Not really. I see this stressing them out. I, I can see that uh, that all the little relationship strings that she has with people are starting to get frayed, and they're they, we need to see some actual movement in the in the choices that Bertha's making. Like, okay, you're making it, and you're really stressing the rest of us out. We better see some rewards, some fruits of your labor here, because we're all uncomfortable with what you're making us do. You know who also needs to get going somewhere? Who? Larry Russell. Even Gladys, even his little sister is like, you're defanged. What can you do? She says, he's like, I'm going to go to Archie's office and I'm going to find out what happened. And Gladys says, and what then? And she's like, exactly, because he doesn't have an answer. He's got nothing. Larry needs focus and movement. I did appreciate, though. Like, I thought he was being a good big brother to at least go get answers. Like, that felt nice to to see him say, don't worry, I'll at least find out what happened. She needs some amount of closure. So I appreciate that she said, well, and what then? Okay, well, but at least she'll know what happened. I mean, do you not want to know what happened? I, she'll have answers in that regard, and, and maybe that'll make her feel I don't I don't know, know, it, 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 it seems so impotent. You know, oh, yes, yes, he's being a big brother, but I feel like, you know, the big brothers here should be like swashbuckling. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go get answers. You know, I don't know. It, it seemed very impotent to the point of even Gladys looked at him and said, yeah. And then what? Like, what is that going to do? Like, you're, I, you know, I don't know. It just seemed I just want Larry to have some focus and some storyline. It's not a large family, the Russells. And I feel like they're they're given blind story to three of the four of them. I, I need Larry to have something to do here in the back half of the season. You know what? They might be hanging on to him for season two. Maybe. Uh, so I think we're we're just about done with the episode. There's only one more thing I think I have in my notes to talk to. That is Mrs. Armstrong, who inexplicably continues to be a real bitch to Peggy. It feels racist, for sure. But this episode, for whatever reason, introduces us to Mrs. Armstrong's other life, where she has to go deal with her very unpleasant mother in a squalor of a house. Why is this in here? Did this make you feel softer towards Mrs. Armstrong? Or, or did you come out of this like, man, like Facebook teaches us, you don't really know what someone else is going through. Uh, so be kind to them always. I'm definitely going through stuff personally right now that feels like I am I'm understanding Mrs. Armstrong and what she's feeling. I think that a lot of people our age are starting to care for their parents or grandparents and and you know, it certainly changes your attitude for the rest of the day when you're when you're being a caretaker to others and and when you're feeling unappreciated or being treated really poorly. That her mother was a scene when she had thrown the pie on the floor. That pie on the floor was worse than all the rest of all the things she said because 
that type of thing, that absolute just disregard for your humanity, and I'm going to make things that you have to clean up on purpose. Oh, I, as a caretaker myself, I can put up with a whole lot. I can cook and clean and I can do medicine and I can do a lot of stuff. But if you're going to actually do stuff that makes it harder on me, too far. You are taking this too far. For me, it just gave the backstory for Armstrong in terms of why she comes so exhausted and angry and bitter. And that when she has these fresh faced girls come into her life, whether it be Peggy or Marion or, or any of the, the younger staff, and they're so happy and bubbly and looking forward to life, she's so beaten down from her own life that it's irritating. It's like, shut your mouth, you know? And definitely there's racist stuff in here. Don't get me wrong. Additionally, just that, God, you still have hope. <laughs> you still have, you know, this, this, uh, view of the world, like anything can happen. And here I am tied to this miserable situation. Yeah. I mean, I got it. And, and for me, having not watched out Nabby, I really, I, I was expecting more of the downstairs, downstairs storylines. So uh, when you're saying like, why is this in here? I'm like, why wasn't there more? Like, why, why weren't we following up with Bridget and Jack? and what was going on with their story and like what happened to what's going on with the help. I needed this Armstrong storyline. I needed to understand that she's not a villain. She's not a jerk. She is a woman with a huge burden on her shoulders. And even on her day off, she's just getting like kicked around. I, apple pie is my favorite dessert. I was offended on behalf of that apple pie. I stood up when that apple pie got thrown on the floor and I said, no, I wasn't having any of it. Someone needs to smother that woman with a pillow. She is a nasty bitch. And, and Armstrong would be happier for it. We, I, yes, I agree with you. I think that's exactly the purpose it served. Let's get more of it, though, right? We, I, want to, I want to get back around to Mrs. Bauer and her gambling debt and our people coming to beat her up. Or I guess she paid it off, right? Ada paid that off, right? Bridget and Jack, what are they doing? I think this is the first time we've now explored Armstrong. So maybe that's why I was like, why is this in here beyond giving us some context? Because she's been nothing but negative and specifically negative towards Peggy in a way that I don't like. Like, we don't see her sniping at Jack and sniping at Bridget. We see her only sniping at young Peggy, which I'm not I'm not down here for the racism aspect of it. Like, if you're gonna be a bitch to the young people, be a bitch to all of them. It's fair. It's fair. But what I'm hear what I'm saying when someone comes in so full of life and so bubbly and so energetic and she's a new energy. Bridget's an old energy that's been in the kitchen for a while. Peggy is is like like we heard. Maybe we need a disruption here. Right. Well, okay, but this is what you get when you have disruption. You have people who are, first of all, going through their own shit. And and Peggy, not that she poked the bear on purpose in any way. There was nothing wrong with saying, hey, what you going to do on your day off? Nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, it's like now that we know what she's going to do with her day off, like, is it really not understandable? And are, are, can you really just pick on racism in that situation? Or is it like there's other things at play, too, where she just doesn't want to hear the happy stories of the young people who are getting to make something out of their lives while she's stuck in this horrible rut? That's a very good point. And very understandable. Just like everyone in the downstairs staff at both houses, there's there's so many storylines that have been introduced, so many threads that have been introduced that in nine episodes, I'm like, oh, which ones are these are going to get tossed over to season two? Like, 
I, I think they're all interesting to to a certain extent. I want to know more about them. And and we haven't even touched on Bannister and Church, like the heads of the households. You know, I, I want to know all about all of them. I think they're really interesting and well-drawn characters. So I'm thankful when we get this kind of backstory. Man, I could have done without the pie, pie uh, disrespect, though. Oh, it was so mean. I was like, that tells you everything you need to know about this mother. I'm just she ripping is... on the lunch, too, because you know, you know, like Armstrong, like yeah, Mrs. Bauer cooked that lunch. Making and stuff. you right. clean up food off the floor, Mike. I mean, that yeah. is a level of cruelty that is just unforgivable. I just, yeah. oh, I'm so angry at her. The last character who had a real midseason event, we talked about Bertha having her midseason event this episode. We have to talk about George. This episode ends with uh, Clay rushing to the house to announce that a train, a Russell train, has gone off the tracks just outside of Milbourne, Pennsylvania. There are three dead so far, three dead so far, scores of injured. They go right into, right away, they go into panic mode or, or crisis mode. He asks Bertha if she can get on the phone to Clara Barton to get the Red Cross down there, says we'll give her anything she needs. But he makes very clear. A crash like this could be the end of us. It could ruin us. This one event could be the end of us. So this feels like the beginning of the back end of Georgia's story. If if his mid-season event was getting the rail station approved, which we saw last week, right? We got we saw the Union Central station plans be unveiled. This seems like the start of his next challenge. I have watched so much Yellowstone with you that for sure I thought when George was standing by that fireplace and he's like, this could be the end of us. I 100% thought here he is going to throw that glass of alcohol into the flames and we're going to see this like, you know, come up. And that's how the episode was going to end. And when he didn't, I was like, oh, George, you missed an opportunity there. A hundred percent. This is what the Russell's attention is going to be put on. Boy, were they smart to to get in with the Red Cross, get in with Clara Barton, really start like having some support in their in their back pocket because, man, they're going to need it. And I, I hope that they can control the press and they can make this work in their favor. I'm worried for them because you know how it is, especially if you're not a protected family or anything. I mean, they could really get raked over the coals. Let's play one more clip here, just because we touched on it a little bit before. There's an interesting scene here, and it's done with, like, the loopy, like, don't take this too seriously music. But it's an interesting commentary where Agnes is talking about Mrs. Astor. Because I think we all have this thought that Agnes is going to be completely lockstep with Mrs. Astor in all things. And it turns out she feels like more like she's something that has to be dealt with versus someone that she's actually maybe loyal to. Let's play this clip and then we'll finish the episode on this conversation. Aurora has invited Mrs. Russell to luncheon. She has. And who else will be there? The latest arrivals from Ellis Island? I'm going, and so is Mr. McAllister. Oh, dear. Don't we approve of him either? He spends his life puffing people up or putting them down. Mrs. Astor needs her lieutenants. Do you like Mrs. Astor? That's like saying, do you like rain? She is a fact of life that we must live with. Whom else has Aurora invited? Not many. I'd say we're just there to take the edge off their meeting. Really? That woman has the resilience of a cockroach. Dear me. Should we send John to carry out some pest control? (laughs) If only we could. (laughs) Oh, that laugh at the end is delicious. 
<laughs> if only we could. <laughs> what do you think of that idea? This idea that she, Mrs. Esther is like rain. She is a fact of life that we all just have to live with. I was absolutely surprised at the comment foolishly because I know anyone with that much power at some level is is going to be despised. You can't have that much power and have people not feel subjugated to you. And when you have that, that alone makes people feel just sort of angry with you on some level. I would like to know in real life, and we'll have to talk about this over on the Facebook page, if this is how people felt about Mrs. Astor. For some reason, because I didn't have any personal issue with her on the show, I was feeling like, I don't, you know, I don't know. She seems fine. Like, I, di- I didn't know people were sitting around feeling like, mm-hmm, you know, she's like the rain, you just have to put up with her kind of stuff. I, I didn't, I didn't know there was actual like anger towards her, but I'm going leaning heavily on the you just you know heavy is the head that wears the crown and she wears the crown that's just going to come with a lot of haters there is good backstory there and we'll i I can dive into it a little bit more on the facebook page but suffice to say mrs astor got the title of mrs astor because she took it for herself she actually wasn't the right one to be the mrs astor because it just the way genealogy goes, her husband had an older brother who had a son whose wife should have been the Mrs. Astor and actually ended up causing a split in the Astor family. So Mrs. Astor kind of cooed, did like a little bit of a coup d'etat of the Astor name. And was so a little bit of an upstart herself. You know, when her and Ward came up with the rules for what makes a gentleman, you had to have family here for four generations before you could be deemed a gentleman. The Astors were not here for four generations before she came up with those rules. So when her and Ward sit down to come up with that list of the 400, there are three sets of Astors on that list. None of them actually met the criteria that they held everyone else to to make that society list. I don't want to say jumped up, but Mrs. Astor created rules out of whole cloth that didn't really apply to her necessarily, but she for sure held everyone else to an exacting standard. So I'm sure engendered a lot of anger among the people who really did come on the Mayflower, really did come when the Dutch, you know, called this New Amsterdam like the Van Rynes. So, so interesting. Mrs. Astor was not without her sins and faults. And who is really? For sure. For sure. And you don't get to the top of the heap without, you know, blackening some eyes here and there. You know, stuff happens and people get angry with you. Nobody always loves the leader all the time. Like, there's just no way. And again, if you feel like her decision making can make or break your life, who doesn't feel oppressed by that person? She brought order, her and Ward anyway, brought order and chaos to a system of of debutantes and and powerful snobs that needed that needed rules and they needed structure. She provided that. Uh, you know, interesting to hear Agnes speaking out in public. I mean, they're not even in there ensconced in the armor of their drawing room. This is in like an open air cab. They're having this conversation. Seems very scandalous. Mike, what do you want to see in the back half of this season with a season two already greenlit? We know it's coming, so we don't have to do as much work in this first season 
season as we might have had to had we not known about season two. What do you want to see? Give me give me just three things that you want to well, delve thank more God you into. Said three and not just one. I was trying to be kind to you. If you were going to make me do <laughs> but one. But if you give me four, I'm cutting it out. So give me three. If you made me do one and there was going to be semicolons and and connectors. Three. three is what you get. I want to know more about Peggy and her mystery. I'm, I am so invested in, especially with these clues that they laid out, uh, this Elias Finn introduction and her heavy burden. I want to know Peggy's mystery. I want to see Marion continue to grow in friendship and being a good friend and, and in love and and have her really explore what it means to be in love. I think young people use that word so often and really don't understand it. And I mean, I'm into Bertha's climb. I want to see how now that Ward is on the scene, Nathan Lane is here. I want to see what this ascension looks like as she makes her way up the ladder. Those are my three things. Definitely, Peggy. Super interested in her story. I think that there is going to be more about Turner and some sort of issue with her coming, whether it happens all in second season or not. I Did just we don't talk think... about, I mean, that Oscar has, I think we said at the very beginning here. Just, but... the, the, just the spy portion that there's there's, there's some spying business going on. We definitely can talk about it more in next episode. But for sure, I feel like there's something about Turner. I just don't think that she's going to accept what happened last episode and not have something brewing. I just, I just feel it. Like she was snotty in this episode, you know, to the rest of the downstairs. But I do feel like there's something more going on with her. My third will be, I'm going to go with George and Bertha. We've been so excited about their relationship. We've held them up on this pedestal as like, boy, would the Morrises or the Fanes like to be the Russells and how they communicate and how they get along together. If we're starting to see some strain between George and Bertha, I want to know more about that. I want to see, can they hold tight? Are they going to have to have some better communication about like, hey, I can't handle this and like the Gladys things at a breaking point. I think that's my number three. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to New Money, Old Rules, the Gilded Age podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and definitely subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, if you could, while you're there, leave us a five-star rating. We would most appreciate it. Maybe we'll read your five-star review like Canna1980. Excellent highlight of the Gilded Age. Really enjoying listening to this podcast. Love hearing fun facts that Mike throws in. Or Sarah CS761. Loving the Gilded Age and really appreciated the host's playful yet insightful review. Looking forward to the rest of the season. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for leaving comments. If you guys leave a five-star review, maybe we'll read it on air. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.